Sword of Omens, come to my hand. I, Lionel, command it. I also command that you keep listening to Adrian Has Issues. Hey everybody, welcome to Adrian Has Issues. Today's guest you've heard back on episode 51 entitled The Fighting Kims. She is an Eisner and Glad nominated comic book writer. Uh, let's see, Kim and Kim, Quantum Teens Are Go. Um, actually, some other great books, um, including a miniseries Eternity Girl, uh, Transformers vs. Visionaries. And we had a lot of fun talking last time about comics, presidents who've beaten the crap out of people during speeches. It was a lot of fun, so I can't wait to chat with her again. But please welcome Max Vizagio. Max, welcome back to the show. How are you? I'm doing really good tonight. How are you? I'm doing good. I'm full. <laughs> like, I just had dinner. I was watching Guardians of the Galaxy. Made me cry. I'm kind of a mess right now, but I'm super happy to have you back because I really did have an absolute blast chatting with you last time. And, um, you know, we were talking at the end of the last show about, um, you know, American history and, of course, some like interesting stories regarding presidents. And you had told a story that everybody really loved about Andrew Jackson. And I had to play that back on episode 100 because people got a kick out of it. So I was like, you know what? That was a lot of fun. We should definitely do this again sometime. And then nothing for a year. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. You keep saying that, but it's not like you ghosted. You've been mad busy, though. I've been very busy. I've been busier than I've ever been in my entire life. You've been, of course, working on so many different comics. I mean, shoot. I always ask this question of my guests only because I'm kind of envious in that regard. But it's like, where the hell do you find the time? Um, I'm actually really careful about how I budget my time. So a bit over a year ago, so October 2016, when I was first starting to look at my 2017 and being realizing, like, uh, oh, shit, how am I going to make this work? Like, and I was seriously like, I have no idea how to do the amount of work that I was staring down. And I've been working pretty consistently like every week of this year on something. Um, I've written at this point, like 41 comics, 42 comics this year. And so I I tweeted about that and I just tagged a couple of comics pros that I was kind of friendly with. So like Kieran Gillen and Marguerite Bennett. Marguerite Bennett responded with this amazing thread of just advice for anybody who is hitting the level of like a working professional just like things that she learned, you know, when, when, she, when she hit that wall. Right. And the thing that stuck out to me the most that I've really taken to heart was treat it like a job because that's what it is. It's not a hobby. It's a job. And that means you don't fit it in where, you know, where you're free. That means, means something you make time for. And it's also something that you don't overextend yourself on. So what I do in terms of finding the time is I write because I, li- I live in New York City, and I have an hour-long commute on the train every morning. Um, I'm lucky enough that I get on the train really early on. Like, I'm, I'm like the second stop on okay. my train. And then I only have one train to my office. So I have an hour, and I will write for an hour there and an hour back. That's two hours a day of writing. That's 10 hours a week of writing. And in that 10 hours, I can knock out one script a week. And I do my best to avoid having spillover. This week kind of got away from me. Because remember, like, there was that stupid botched bombing in Times Square? 
that was yesterday for people who were listening to this God knows when. Um, it was such a non thing, like nothing happened. And everyone's like, oh, our hearts and minds are with everyone in New York. And I'm like, yeah, we were all late for work, I guess. Um, it screwed up my commute. And like, I, I, I'm a little, I was a little behind as I've been playing catch up since yesterday, just trying to get back on track. But I slot it into this time to the best of my ability. So that way, when I get home from work, I'm done. You know, like I've done my writing. I've hit my five pages for the day. Then I can like enjoy my evening and relax and, and turn off. It means that by the time I get home, I'm usually completely wiped out, which is good. Which I'm actually glad that we're having this conversation because something that I wanted to talk to you about, and this is something that I kind of had in the back of my mind and interacting on social media and things like that. You know, you do mention, of course, your scripting, and I've always wanted to get into your process and also just writers in general and even artists because something I realized that I want to talk to people about more is that process. So, you know, obviously, like I said, you write on your commute, but as you're doing your scripting on a train, is that including just dialogue or is that outlining or is it just a certain section of the scripting process? Okay. By the time I get to what I'm doing, I'm actually already pretty far in. So I have to back up a little bit. And by a little bit, I mean, literally all the way. Um, <laughs> So when I'm, you know, working out a story arc, like I do a shitload of planning before I'm ever scripting. So like I, I'll have roughly what my themes are. Here's like a short description of what the story is. And then I'll just develop that out until I have, here's like a paragraph or two about what's happening in every single issue. So I already know what the story is. And like, and that story is really rough, but I have the, the general shape of it. And there's going to be changes along the way, but I can see it from a distance, you know, like I can make out the outlines. So by the time... I get to the scripting stage, the super hard work of plotting out the story is done. So what I'll do is I'll take that two paragraph outline and I'm going to break this down by days of the week. Okay. So, because I, I'm, I'm very regimented because that's how I operate and it works really well. So on Monday I sit down with my laptop and I have a Mac. So I have like the split screen view on one side of my screen I'm doing hand gestures that you can't see. <laughs> so on one side of my screen, I've got the two paragraph outline that just says like, in this issue, Superman, you know, is, is sick. And then Mongol shows up and blah, blah, you know, that bullshit. And then on the other page I have, I have on the other side of the screen, I should, I mean, I just, I outline on page one, this is what happens on page two. This is what happens on page three. This is what happens. Right. And generally it's like between a sentence to, one sentence to like a, maybe three or four sentences. Um, that's just kind of the general shape of the page so that I can see, you know, a real top down look at the issue with more detail. And that's where I do all my pacing work where I'm like, okay, you know, I've got 22 pages. How do I fit these two paragraphs into 22 pages of sequential art? Generally speaking, all things being equal, well, by the end of Monday, I've got that done. This week I didn't because of the idiot terrorist. So I finished that up this morning. So I have the, you know, the top down view of the issue um, and it's all really general. And so I generally don't move beyond that stage of it, the outline stage on Monday. And I can generally knock that out in about 90 minutes, like taking the whole story and saying, well, here's, here's more or less how I'm going to break it down. And that's really cool. That's kind of my favorite part. And it's sort of the hardest part of the process because that's where I'm like, okay, well, I know what the events of this issue are, but what's it go what kind of comic story is this going to be what's right. the what's the hook of this 
how do I introduce it? That's the hardest part is like staring at that little page one note and just being like, Hey, well, what the fuck is going to happen on page one? I know what's got to happen in the tissue, but the fuck is like the first thing that you see. And so I tend to take the approach of my page ones are like slow burn introductions. I generally don't want to just launch right into the plot. I like to kind of ease you into the story. And then page two is where things really start happening. But like the page ones all like, I do a lot of like mood shots or kind of quieter scenes. Sometimes I'll do a splash page just to sort of like situate you within what the story is. And that's also for me, my process of me figuring out what's the book going to be. I'll think of a, uh, of a, a kind of mood and then I'll try to like figure out what's the way, what's the best way to like get that mood across on this page. And then that informs everything else I do in the whole issue. And so that first page is probably the hardest part, just writing that one sentence about what's happening on this one page, because that's me giving direction to an entire comic story. Like any story or anything that you read, if it doesn't hook you immediately, people can easily tune out. Comic readers will generally give you about two or three pages for people who are like who are like flipping through a book on a shelf in a store. Yeah. They're not going to read one page. They'll read two or three pages. And so what I want to do is like show you right off the bat. Here's one page that's going to be like, well, here's the kind of book this is. I'll give you an example for my Transformers versus Visionaries book. So I'm not going to give away any plot, although everything's fucking solicited. So I don't know what the secrets there are left anyway. Um, (laughs) Oh, no, there's a big one. I definitely can't say that one. Anyway, so I think it's the fourth issue. It opens up with two Transformer scientists, uh, Wheeljack and Breakdown, performing surgery. Like, it's not really surgery, but like they're performing a modification on another Transformer. Okay. So Transformers and Versus Visionaries is a book that can get kind of heavy, but I try to keep a lot, I try to keep the dialogue a little bit light, especially with these two characters. So the other Transformer is a guy named Quick Switch. So he's just kind of like nervous about what's going on and he keeps on trying to get their attention, but they're just bickering over what tool they're using. And it's a splash page and that's literally all you get. But you know right off the bat that this is going to be a comic that has high stakes. When you read through the first few pages, I can't say like what they're doing. But once you find out what they're doing, you like realize, okay, well, this is a little this is actually pretty high stakes stuff. That's being done with a little bit of a wink and a nod. Which is kind of the approach I'm trying to take with this book sort of overall anyway. It's like I said, I mean, like it's a, it's I'm writing kind of a traditional superhero comic with, with this stuff. Like tonally, it's really similar. And so just always trying to keep that lightness through it. But that first page is kind of an example of a way that I accomplished that in that issue. So like that page, you read that, and you, you, you sort of know what the rest is. So something else that I've kind of been wondering is not only just the process, but, you know, taking a train to work. I'd imagine by the time you get closer towards the end of that stop, you know, like any train, it gets full, it gets hectic. So, I mean, just I know this might be a dumb question, but this is something I've kind of been asking myself because I know for me, like I am actually at my most creative, the more commotion there is. So I don't know if that's ever like an issue when it comes to your scripting or is that something that you feed off of or do you have ways you tune it out? I basically tune it out. I'm pretty much in my own world. Like I was working on my train today and I looked up and we were speeding past the last three stops on my trip. And I was like, was there an announcement? <laughs> because I don't remember anything and no one else seemed concerned. So I guess that happen. <laughs> but like, I pretty much zone out. I try to, every time we get to a stop, I, I like, I'll like, I, every time I notice the train to stop, I look up and try to see what stop we're at so I can gauge where we're at. But yeah, mostly I just kind of 
curl in into tighter and tighter balls and aggravate my carpal tunnel. Not lying either. Like, I have fucked up my wrist doing this. I couldn't imagine just trying to, like, script out an entire story, having to deal with the hustle and bustle of, you know, people literally, like, piling on top of each other, like, near the end of a train. Because, like, my God. It works out because I get on the train so early, and my train has one of those older cars that are, like, have, like, the L configuration. And so I'll try to get a spot right up against a window. So I really only have to worry about one person. And I don't have to worry about, like, the crush of people entering the train because they're not a factor. When that doesn't happen, when I get one of those seats that's, like, facing into the car, it's just like, well, this is going to be a shitty ride. <laughs> yeah, because then, of course, you had to deal with people trying to figure out what the hell you're doing. And because people are nosy as shit. <laughs> yeah, they are. I've had, I've been interrupted in my writing by people who want to talk to me about my writing. And I'm like, you know, I could, you could just let me write it. <laughs> I'm clearly busy. I don't know. Maybe that's just, I'm just proving just how antisocial I am. Because I know people do that. It's like, oh, what are you up to? And I'm like none of your business um but yet it's like i know sometimes people aren't always doing it to be awful but you know some people actually like the conversation but i also know if someone looks intently like they're doing something and they're not looking up and they're hyper focused that's usually kind of like grounds to let them do what they're doing you know yeah you'd think that but i have i have these issues all the time it's actually worse when i because i also write when i'm like taking just trips outside the state so if I'm on like a train ride, you know, like then it's just like every person is going to ask me what I'm doing. And I think it's because my laptop has stickers on it so that I don't look like I'm doing something important. <laughs> really? <laughs> I think that's what I think is that they, they see the stickers and like, they're like, oh, is she playing a game? Oh, she's <laughs> writing something. Oh, I see Transformers. I should ask. <laughs> it's like, well, you could just wait till the book's out, but guess what? If it's delayed, it's kind of your fault now. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. <laughs> oh, boy. that's Granted, it's like denial plausibility. It's like, yeah, okay, you know what? This book might be delayed thanks to the assholes on this particular train. Thank you all. <laughs> now someone's going to miss their comic book fix because you want to be nosy. <laughs> uh, I've, I've not run into that issue. I've, to date, only turned in one late script. And that was because I had my deadline wrong. I was on time for what I thought the deadline was. Let's get into some of your comics. I have to, you know, start with Kim and Kim because that book, well, actually books, because, I mean, since the last time you've spoken, um, you actually had the follow-up, um, Kim and Kim Love is a Battlefield, which I was reading earlier today. And God, I love that book so much. Thank you so much. Did you get to read the whole thing? Yeah. Oh, man, that ending was so weird to write. <laughs> It's the least Kim and Kim issue of Kim and Kim. I didn't really think about it much when we first talked, but of course, you know, knowing the process and just, you know, knowing just how the events sort of unfolded. And I really do think it's a, a great fitting into that book. But I guess, well, let's start at the beginning for those who are listening who may not have heard you on the first podcast. Do like a quick overview as to what Kim and Kim is about. So Kim and Kim is about two best friends who launch an interdimensional bounty hunting business out of their flying van. And that's basically the, the, the gist of it. Like there's a lot of like early twenties kind of life drama, you know, like dysfunctional families trying to make rent. Kim and Kim is you know, in so many ways, really just a book about failure. And I, I really associate that theme with my twenties. So it's a book about what being in my twenties felt like in a lot of ways. And yeah, I mean, I just kind of wanted to do like a, a book with two intensely relatable people who lived recognizable lives, even if they had a weird job, you know? It was very relatable and very human, and not for nothing. I mean, 
the trajectory of the book, I mean, the fact that it's gotten so much press, you know, a lot of good buzz. I mean, hell, there's a theme song for it now. <laughs> yeah, that was that was fun. Like, I just happened. Okay, so basically, a fan made a Kim and Kim playlist on Spotify, and there was just one song on it that I really fell in love with um, by this band called The Total Bettys. And I tagged them in a post about how much I love the song, and they tagged me back. And they're like, oh, my God, we fucking love Kim and Kim. And we just started talking. And, uh... I just sort of floated the idea uh, about doing a song as a promotion for San Diego and uh, they were into it and they only wanted us to cover their mastering costs. And it was a great fun little pop punk song with a a little California surfer rock vibe to it a little bit. Right. And it's just a, it was just a great experience. I hope for them too. Like I was really happy with it and we made like these little tapes, like cassette tapes. (laughs) Um, that we sold at uh, at San Diego for it and uh, you can still get because they still have some left over as part of like they're doing like a Christmas bundle at the Black Mask online store funny you should mention Spotify playlist. I'm noticing this more and more because it's something that I often did um, in my writing like for characters where, of course, this is pre-Spotify or a lot of streaming sites, but, you know, building playlists, not necessarily of the writing itself, but like each character had their own specific playlist. And I think it's really amazing that a lot of creators have been doing this where for their books, they've been creating like dedicated playlists that are either a part of, you know, stuff that they listen to while they've created these books or are actually kind of like soundtracks to the stories themselves. And as someone who's kind of a music junkie, I would probably say at this point, um, the marriage of comics and music and the fact that that's more and more becoming the norm, I, I think it's pretty wonderful. I love that stuff. I don't really do it though. Like, I have a hard time listening to music when I'm writing, and it really depends on what I'm trying to do. I tend to find that lyrics, especially English lyrics, can be really, really distracting when I'm doing like heavy brain work. Like sometimes if I'm in like a solid groove when I'm writing, I can listen to something and it, it won't bother me, but it's sort of a case by case basis. I do tend to find that I will listen to different things depending on what I'm working on to sort of get me in, in more of a vibe for it. Like, right. When I'm listening to Kim and Kim, I listen to a lot of Riot Girl music. When um when I'm writing Eternity Girl, I tend to listen to a lot of St. Vincent. Oh my god, she's so wonderful. She really is. And I actually had totally missed she had a new album until like maybe three weeks ago. Have you got a chance to listen to it yet? Oh yeah, repeatedly. It's it's fantastic. But like I like to listen to St. Vincent when I'm working on weird things. <laughs> Weird's the wrong word, but when I'm working on stuff that's a little artsier, right. which is actually a thing that I can do, I know that everyone thinks I just do, like, like quill girls hitting each other with guitars, you know? <laughs> um, but I promise I do other things. Um, that was just what got popular quick. Eternity Girl, that was through DC's Young Animal Imprint, so I don't know if you want to get a little into that and what creating that story has been like. So that's still going on, and actually in the middle of writing the fourth issue right now, the first issue for that will be out in March. Awesome. But I also really recommend people check out the Milk Wars event that Young Animal's doing, the big crossover. It's going to be running from the end of January through the middle of March, I think. So I believe it's six ish, five, six issues. Because I have a two-page stinger in the first four parts of that introducing the character of Eternity Girl. So Eternity Girl has been a really weird, really weird experience for a lot of reasons. The the genesis of this book was extremely lengthy. Um, getting this thing through the door at DC wasn't the easiest process in the world because it's 
So originally we had a book that kind of married a couple of different DC properties and they really wanted us to simplify it. And so that was kind of the price of getting the book. So it's not exactly what we were hoping to make, right. but it's this and jettisoning one half of its concept actually freed me up to reinvent it in a lot of ways. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. We originally had a, an established character in the role of Eternity Girl and they made us get rid of her. So what we ended up having to do was, you know, just sort of come up with a, a new person, but that, that let me sort of invent this whole history around her that has been informing the book in a bunch of really interesting ways. So this isn't like a secret because I, I, I discuss this a little bit at, uh, at the announcement panel at New York Comic Con. So in the stingers, we're doing is we're taking the fictitious publication history of this character and presenting these two-page excerpts from it that span decades. Now, this character didn't exist until this year. Right. You know, but we've got like two pages from her first appearance in 1956 and, and two pages from a reboot in 1983 and, and, and two pages from another revival during the Vertigo era and just like running through this ongoing theme because a big thing in this book is the idea of reinvention and being rebooted and what that must be like. Right. If you're a, a fictional character and you're, people are constantly trying to like, like reinvent you for a new age, like, well, maybe the problem is that nobody really likes you much to begin with. Maybe the problem <laughs> is that there's not really a point to it. And that's kind of what the book's about. So Eternity Girl is, is really an extremely personal book because it's about depression and suicidality, which are things that I have struggled with extensively. It's very much of this year, too. And it's right. been a, a hard book to write in a lot of ways because to get into the headspace of someone who is suicidal is not fun. But it's been an extremely rewarding process, and I think it's some of the most inventive storytelling I've ever attempted. So we have this thing with DC Comics where during, um, I guess about once a year, I've only done it once because I'm new, um, but we'll have this thing called like a masterclass. Well, they'll have like an established pro, like a real established pro, like basically just give a talk to other creatives with the company. And so this year they had Grant Morrison talking with Dan DiDio and Grant was talking a lot about this, um, this vision he has for how he thinks comics should be developing as we move into the future. And he was talking about how, you know, how we, when we go on the internet and we have like a million tabs open and he's like, why don't we have comics that are like that? Because that's how we're reading. That's how we're experiencing the written word and media is in these bits. Why aren't there comics that are trying to be hypertextual like that? You know? And it was weird because, like, that's kind of what I'm doing in Eternity Girl. The narrative tries to maintain a thread even as it moves around a lot because I wanted to 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 sort of communicate the the sort of weird time dilation effect that serious depression can have, where like you're just kind of drifting through the universe, like sort of fading in and out, you know, when you're like really really down. And yeah. it ended up being this this kind of like hypertext. That, uh, that Grant was talking about, which I thought was really, really dope. So I told him about it, and he at least wants to read it, so hopefully it doesn't suck. That is very true, what you said, as far as depression goes. And something I've realized in and of myself is that, you know, it's not necessarily just a matter of, quote, sadness, but the fact that there's also the concept of time lost. <laughs> you yeah. know, like, a, yep, the yep, fact yep. that a depressive funk, I mean... If ever you know, if you don't mind getting a little personal, the last one I've had lasted literal months. 
oh yeah, God, my, this year, my life fell apart. Like if I can get personal within a span of one weekend, I both, my wife left me and I lost my job. Oh, wow. Like that was within a span of four days. And there's also, of course, the guilt factor of, you know, when that time is lost, I mean, you're, depending on the person, you know, you could still be doing your day to day, but you're almost not there. And then coming back, there's also the factor of there could have been so many things I could have been doing that didn't get done or people that maybe felt maybe possibly neglected and things like that. So that's a lot to to weigh. And it's also, you know, going back into like, let's say the comics, not an easy thing to have to dredge up, you know, especially when you're telling a story. I mean, yeah, you want to come from a place of authenticity, but I mean, that's definitely a very dangerous headspace to get into creatively. Every time I'm doing an issue of this book, it seems to correspond with a funk um, although I'm not sure if this one will will get me there because this is a weird issue, uh, even for this weird book. But what Eternity Girl is ultimately about is someone who's both immortal and suicidal who figures out how to kill themselves. And then just the process of them trying to do it um, because it involves this weird mystical quest because, of course, it does. <laughs> but it's like trying to navigate sort of like the really complex selfishness of depression is something I'm really trying to to land here. And um, it can be a very rough book to write. It can be a very hard, painful book to write, but I think it's I think it's working. And also it's important. And while I don't think anyone necessarily and maybe I shouldn't that's speaking in generalities, but you know, it's not that every person goes into it necessarily wanting it to be hard to write but yet you know like any writer you know or any creative really you know you put yourself into your projects explicitly or implicitly you know it just it happens yeah i can't imagine i don't think there's anything i'm working on that's not really personal even transformers versus visionaries which is literally ramming two action figures against each other while going <laughs> you know like when you're when you're playing with toys it's that as a comic book um even that is like deals with a lot of themes that I'm really interested in, like uh, collaboration during like political occupation, like like military occupation and themes of power and loyalty and just like a lot of stuff from the kinds of reading I do. So, I mean, like I, I feel like there's no way to write and have it not come from you in a deep way because it's literally coming from you. At least it should, at least to some degree. I don't think it's possible not to. You know, I've seen projects and, you know, either movies or even sometimes music where sometimes you can kind of feel when it's done by committee. But that's a different issue. Like something being done by committee, that's not coming from anyone and no one's writing it. You know, like I've written things that have been endlessly tinkered to the point that they're just kind of crap, but then it's not mine anymore. You know, it's not me. At that point, it's something else. But I'm saying when you're when you're doing work, that's your work. Like if I write a script and it comes back with a few edits for clarity, it's still mine. If I write a script and they're like, well, we want this to instead be about Elmer Fudd beating up Prince. Well, okay, well, then that's not mine anymore. You know, that doesn't have anything to do with me. And I might execute it, but that's not mine. And that's sort of the beauty of creator-owned comics. And I'm glad that we have those spaces to still do that. And I got to say, though, I've done work for with Marvel in D.C., and everybody's pretty cool about you being allowed to have a vision for what it is. You know, like there's lines you have to color within, but within those lines, there's like, there's actually a surprising amount of freedom. As well, there should be. 
there's nothing worse than stifled creativity because I think that ultimately readers or listeners or viewers will see that. Maybe not initially, but over time, because I mean, how many times have you seen thing pieces about a certain project where, you know, with time rule, they look back and go, oh, wow, that's, you know, a lot different than what we thought it was. And, you know, positive or negatively, but I think eventually people will notice it. So it doesn't go by completely um, under the radar. So one of the cool things about that I got out of the DC workshop, um, which was really an extraordinary experience, Scott Snyder was teaching it. And the whole point of the class wasn't to teach us how to write comics because we all over, we wouldn't be there if we didn't know how. Right. It was how to operate within continuity and still tell the stories you want to tell. Like it was how to translate the things that interest us into a DC comic, which is a very specific kind of product. You know, mm-hmm. like Kim and Kim is not a DC comic. There's no way that kind of book like that specific kind of book would ever exist in the DC universe as it exists right now. You know, that's not on brand for them. That's not their kind, like that kind of like manic, like anarchy kind of thing. You'll, you'll see that in, in like Jimmy Palmiani and Amanda Connors, Harley Quinn, but even that's its own weird side universe that has nothing to do with the rest of the DCU. That's not a DC comic. And so what we did in this workshop was we wrote a couple of scripts. Like we wrote two comic scripts and the whole point was there's your incontinuity issues. Like they're not things that are getting made, but like it was for training. These are incontinuity stories. You know, so what you're doing has to conform, at least in the in broad strokes, because you don't necessarily have to be super current for the purposes of the exercise, but it has to like be a DC product. But then what's what interests you and how can we get that across in this thing? So like I wrote a, a spec Superman script for it. And um, again, it's not a thing that's ever going to get made. They were like, first thing, we want you to just come right out of the gate, swinging for the fences, write your ideal, like, titanic superhero story, you know? Like, you've always wanted to write the Justice League, write the Justice League. You've always wanted to write Batman, write Batman. And so I came out with Superman because Superman's my favorite thing in comics. I fucking love Superman. And (laughs) um, I've been in love with Superman since I was, like, 20. I got a Kingdom Come at my university bookstore and was like, holy shit. (laughs) Yeah, that would definitely do it. Yeah, I mean, I'm not like a big Superman fan myself, so I mean, I apologize if I don't particularly share that love, but that is a damn good story. There's nothing to apologize for. You're allowed to like what you like. <laughs> and so I was like, well, I'm really interested in the kind of like the, the, the sort of like a dream Superman comic that I've been wanting to do for, for a long time for me was a death of Superman comic. And they're like, well, you can't do a death of Superman comic because you can't kill Superman. Well, I'm like, OK, well, that's true. So it was like, okay, well, what interests me about that story? And I was like, oh, well, because I'm really interested in the ideas of, of, of Superman's relationship to his legacy, of Superman's relationship to the way people see him, what he means to the world, you know, how he feels about that and how that affects him. So once I had identified the part of the idea that interested me, I could transmute that idea into something that was in continuity. And that had the bombast and the the hugeness and the craziness of a DC story while also hitting the emotional notes that I wanted to hit. And like that's the thing I always found really interesting about how Scott teaches is there's so much emphasis on the emotion. He's like they will buy whatever crazy plot shit you throw at them if the if the emotion's there. Like if you make them feel it the way the characters are feeling it. 
then you can be like, yeah, and then and then Batman rides a dinosaur out of captivity, you know, <laughs> like which is exa- that happened. <laughs> that was in Metal Number One. It was the like that's a really intense comic book that's like all over the place in terms of like what's happening in it, but the emotion is real. The plot stakes are consistent. That's the key is just figuring out a way to transmit your ideas through this particular model of storytelling. And Snyder's been very good with that with Batman. I mean, I grew up predominantly Marvel, so DC, you know, came very later in my life. Oh, I'm the same way. I think it's so funny that I'm in so much at DC when I grew when I like I never really touched DC until the last seven, eight years. And even then I'm still mostly reading Marvel and like stuff. Yeah, that's kind of how I was. Um, and matter of fact, I hadn't read any of Snyder's stuff until I was at a convention, and uh, a friend of my Big Kev hands me the trade, uh, volume one of Court of the Owls. And he's like, here you go. And I'm like, but I don't really read Batman a whole lot, and I don't even really read DC all that. And he's like, trust me, you're going to want to read this. And I'm like, you know what? Alright, because he said it was such conviction, and almost like a borderline, I don't want to say stare down, but it was like, oh shoot, it was almost like he was handing me keys to like, this super expensive car, but yet being like, drive as crazy as you want to drive with this thing. I'm like, alright, fine, I'll read it. So, you know, on the trip to work, halfway through, it's like, holy shit, like, this is, this is damn good. (laughs) Yeah, Scott's a freaking master. My first Snyder story was Witches, one of my absolute favorite comics in the world, um, I'm still like amazed that I just now know him. <laughs> um, like I, I, I have his phone number. <laughs> I was like, I could just text Scott Snyder right now and be like, "Hey, talking about you on a podcast," and he'd be like, "Hope it's nothing bad," and I'd be like, "It's all terrible." Scott Snyder is the absolute worst. Let me stop. <laughs> oh, he's so nice. He I really love, is. I love Scott so much. He has been unflaggingly supportive in some personal things in my life as well. Like he just he's he's really involved and he really cares about his students. I learned so much about doing the art of superhero comics, which is not something I'd ever really done. And I've been trying to translate that over to the work I'm doing um, on Transformers versus Visionaries, which was, which is really kind of my first real venture in just like straight up genre adventure. Right. And where basically where I'm playing in someone else's toy box with somebody else's toys. And it's been such a blast. It's been a surprisingly fun project because I didn't really know what to expect going in having those tools to be able to tell, like you said, a personal story within this very grand concept. It's kind of cool. Like, And I'm noticing that also is that creator-owned sort of mindsets are sort of working their way into larger... And by say company driven, I don't mean that to sound negative, but you know, in a like a larger comic book landscape. And I think that's cool because that way, maybe in a in a way, it'll hopefully transition and that way bridge a gap. So that way, people don't feel that these two types of books are so alien and that there needs to be a separation. That there can be a marriage of the two. I think that it's it's totally fair for there to be that separation because. I think that, you know, different audiences are, going, are are looking for different things. And I don't think every comic is for every person. And I think that that's okay. Well, I'm a very big believer in having a diverse range of comics. Right. I think I was more kind of going more towards some people where it's like, I'll only read this. And, you know, they're super turned off by creator own. Whereas, you know, I'll only read this. And, you know, this doesn't fascinate me. But yet, you know, in there, there could be a story that, you know, could have a little bit of a crossover effect. I guess it's probably a better way to explain it. And that makes sense. I think that that's sort of always true, you know, and it has always been true of every kind of media, that there's always going to be something that's there to hook you in something. But I think for comics, one of its biggest weaknesses is the extent to which we are so overly dominated by one structure of comics 
like the superhero adventure comic is so overwhelmingly dominant that I think there's a much bigger need to get people who don't read comics at all reading comics than it is to get people who read make it into fine to read X-Men. There's always these discussions about how comic book culture has exploded in pop culture. That is very true, but at least from what I'm seeing, and you know, correct me if you feel that I'm wrong, but I don't feel that it's necessarily crossing over to readership. It absolutely isn't. And there's incredibly straightforward reason for that. I think there's a bunch of reasons, but like, to be perfectly honest, like you're not going to buy a comic unless you go to a comic shop and you're not going to go to a comic shop unless you already want to buy a comic. We have an entire industry where the only place to get comics is at superhero hobby stores. And if you don't give a shit about superheroes, you're never going to read Wiccan and Divine. You're never going to read Witches. You're never going to read Giant Days. You're never going to read Lumberjanes. You're never going to read Jonesy or whatever the hell it is that you're never going to read. You're never going to read it because you're never going to know it exists because you don't give a shit about Batman. I'm still kind of figuring out a lot because it's it's very complicated. But I think a lot of that also falls into the, the fact that, you know, there's a large number of retailers who I don't think get it, you know. And I'm very fortunate that I am in an area where, for the most part, the comic book stores, you know, retailers are very awesome. They're very good at engaging customers, getting them to read new things or, you know, being very knowledgeable without being, you know, condescending and things like that. But there's a lot of people who, you know, you read these stories where retailers won't carry certain books because they don't like the fact that, you know, there may be, you know, um, you know, a trans character or they're, you know, they don't like the fact that, hey, there may be a black kid that's Spider-Man. And that's like almost horrific to me. Like, I agree, but I also don't think that's the problem because that's a problem within the structure that we've got, you know, whereas the problem is the structure. Let me put it like this. So basically it can't be the job of the individual comic shops out there to expand the comics readership because there's a cultural problem that we have with comics, which is that you can't find comics. There are people who, when I say I write comic books for a living, they're like, they still make comic books. People have no idea. Comics are an option. Like, if you don't care about superheroes, comic books are never going to cross your fucking mind. You can't find comic books at checkout lines. There's no spinner racks. You can't find comics out in the world. You can only find them at a comic store, which means you're only buying comics if you're already interested in comics, which generally means that the only re- people who are buying comics are people who knew people who got them into comics. You know, it's not like music where you turn on the radio or watch a commercial and you hear a song, like music's just out there. And so people are going to go to where it is they can get music. You know, they'll go to Spotify. They'll go, maybe they'll go to their fucking local record store if they want to like physically own a thing or Best Buy or something. But like, they're out there looking for music. They're interested in music, but no one's looking for comics because no one is aware of comics as like an option. And so the problem isn't that we've got retailers who won't carry, you know, Kim and Kim or Giant Days or something. The problem is that we're reliant on those retailers to carry the entire industry and do basically all the marketing and outreach for us, which is a shame. And I don't have a solution for it. You know, I'm not putting blame on any one company. I'm not trying to say that like, oh, it's Marvel's fault for blah, 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 or DC's fault for blah, blah, blah. 
I think that we as an industry decided decades ago that we were going to retreat to the hobby shops and to double down on a, on a chunk of, of the customer base because we found that doing that was more profitable because we had more control over the distribution deals that way and could like focus our lines. And so there are all sorts of business reasons why, why it happened. But here we are and we've got an industry that is just just so in this like retail rut. And I think that comic shops are by and large doing a fantastic job of outreach. Like I'm not trying to pin any blame on anybody or say that anybody's doing anything wrong, except that we're, we're in this like situation that we don't know how to get out of because no one wants to alienate the comic stores because we need them. And no one wants to alienate the existing superhero readers because we need them. But we also need to pivot elsewhere. And so I've been really impressed because I know DC is looking into some other initiatives to, to um, pull in some other readers. This has been, I'm not sure how much of this has been talked about in public, but I know there was some discussion following San Diego about DC trying to like create new graphic novel material that would be bookstore oriented. And I have noticed that too, where graphic novels do very good business in certain cases. Graphic novels do crazy. Do you know who dominates American comics? It's Raina Telgemeier. She is the number one comics person. Like, she sells more than anybody. Like, anybody. Nobody even comes close. Like, she dominates, like, week after week after week after week. The biggest growth in the industry right now is in the middle grade market. So we're talking, like, graphic novels made for 14-year-olds. That's where all the growth is. And DC has been absolutely just like nailing that market. Um, DC Superhero Girls has sold over 100,000 copies. Um, we're talking a graphic novel marketed to kids. It sold 100,000 copies. That's really cool. Yeah, and my stepdaughter loves that book. I mean, we got her the first day for free comic book day. And it's like, I can't wait to actually start collecting those so that way she can finish reading it because, you know, she won't put it down. And, you know, and I love that she's jazzed because... You know, that's also another factor, too, is the fact that, you know, let's, you know, a generation is, you know, changing and there's new readers. So with each passing several years, you know, obviously the way people consume their media changes as well. So there's that to deal with. So you know how I got into comics? They had a rack at Books a Million when I was a kid. And so like I'd already read a couple of comics because my dad got me a couple one day just because like there's things he picked up for himself. But then one day we were at Books a Million and I saw this rack of comics and I was like, Oh crap. That's so cool. <laughs> and so I just started buying random books. You know, just never happened to catch my attention that day, you know? Um, but like you don't see comic racks like anywhere outside comic shops anymore. Right. But that's just talking about like the periodical comics market. And so when you go and look at what's going on in the book market, what's going on with graphic novels, whether they're middle grade or, you know, adult or literary. Um, there's so much explosive growth in that segment, and it's something that we all kind of need to be looking at and all kind of need to start getting ready for that generation of readers because we need to keep them reading comics, and that means we need to put comics in front of them, and they're not at comic shops. And so like, what I think that we need to do is start putting together periodical comics that go on a rack in the kids' graphic novel department, Burns & Noble. Like, introduce them to comics that are age-appropriate, that you can understand, 
you know, and that will will keep them reading, that will bring them into the stores where there's so many more options and there's so much excitement. That way, it's not like we're saying, oh, you know, comic book stores need to go away. Because I think, you know, there's also sometimes people feel threatened. You know, anytime something new comes up, then it's like, well, you're getting rid of the old stuff, right? And like, no, not necessarily. We're just bringing it to a place where maybe there was a, a lack thereof, I guess. Yeah, and I don't think that comic shops are probably going to go away anytime soon. But I mean, God, you—I mean, you, you don't know what the what the future is going to be like, or how the market's going to evolve, or maybe at some point we'll totally embrace digital. Who knows? You know, like it's an ever-evolving, shifting marketplace. I feel like if we just stick to well, this is what we've done for forty years. All we're doing is watching sales just kind of eat themselves. And that's very true of a lot of situations. Like, look at Finland and how much fucking Scrooge McDuck they sell. The Finnish comic market can sell like 400,000 issues of Scrooge McDuck a week. <laughs> a week. A week. I didn't realize Scrooge McDuck was crushing it in that area. <laughs> Batman doesn't do those numbers. That's because they have a comics culture. They have a readership. They haven't relegated comics to like to like a fringe medium. And like my, my motto is basically like comics are a fringe medium because we've insisted that they be. Because we, as a as an industry and as a readership, together, kind of chose this model where comics is going to be extremely insular and they're gonna, they were going to be very complex and interwoven. And we got so much amazing work out of that. And I'm not, again, I, I don't ever want to sound like I'm being just like unstickingly critical. That's the comics market I grew up in. I mean, that's the comics that I read. I love weird, complex, ongoing, interlocking stories. Right. You know, I love that shit. That's half the fun. But... That model is really hard to get into, and we're turning a lot of people away. And so we have to have books that also aren't that, and we have to have books that are available outside the comics hobby shop. And I frankly think we probably needed to, even within the big two, might want to think about diversifying the kinds of content we're putting together outside the superhero material, you know, just to like embrace a wider readership. It's one of the things I always like about Oni is like their whole motto is we are the real mainstream. You know, like, we're not mainstream comics, we're like actual mainstream stories. Like, that's their idea. There's no tights and fights. It's it's just like, well, here's character-driven, sometimes genre fiction, sometimes non-genre fiction stories. It's definitely a, a lot of food for thought, and it's going to be interesting to see what happens. And Because, I mean, obviously, whatever will be, will be. But, you know, we always kind of hope that it keeps going, and I just would hate to think that there was ever a time where comics weren't the thing, which I don't think there will be, but you know, there's just a lot of different parts to it. And it's just, yeah, it's because even I realized I'm like, ah, oh, shoot, you know, the time in which I first started reading comics as a kid, you know, we're starting to move away from that. So it's like my kids will read something completely different. And I think as well, they should. And the comics that I grew up on don't exist anymore. Mm -hmm. The comics my dad grew up on when he got me into comics don't exist anymore. My dad grew up reading you know, Superman in the late 50s, you know, I grew up reading, you know, X-Men and, and, and Spider-Man in the 90s of all things. Yep. Same here. <laughs> you know, like my love of comics comes from material that is widely regarded as some of the worst material comics has ever put out. And I don't care, but I love it so much. <laughs> me, too. me too. Me too. Me too. I'm just going to say it. I didn't hate the Clone Saga. It happened when I was 10. I was thought it was great. I still swear like an undying love for the like Age of Apocalypse. So you know what? Oh, I, yeah. I get you. Apocalypse is the shit. 
I loved Age of Apocalypse. I loved Bloodlines. Oh my god, Bloodlines. I loved Fatal Attractions. I loved Reign of the Supermen. You know, all this <laughs> insane stuff. Just comics have moved on in so many ways. Right. <laughs> and I just want to make sure we're moving in a way that isn't up its own ass. I do feel at least, you know, the sound of the little schmaltzy is that Comics are at least in good hands. It's just a matter of, will they allow to continue to do the good work that they've been doing? So, you know, I, I think we're at least, I feel like we're heading in a decent direction, but, you know, it, it, it's going to take time. Well, as long as it's selling, which, you know, that's a problem. That being said, the beauty of it is that we have so much stuff that moves in trade to non-traditional audiences. Like, Kim and Kim doesn't do great in single issues. It just doesn't. But we do actually pretty good numbers in trades. So in bookstores and in libraries, um, we do really good numbers at shows. Kim and Kim moves among people who aren't going into comic shops. Kim and Kim's trade moves really consistently. Like it's not like earth shaking numbers, but that book sells. And I run into it at stores all the time. Like that book's around. You can run into Kim and Kim in places where you're not going to run into the latest issue of X-Men. And it moves among people who aren't going into the comic shops, which I just think is really important. You look at things like Squirrel Girl, which doesn't do incredible numbers month to month. But those graphic novels are crazy. <laughs> but it's trades that like fucking crazy. Yeah. But also you got to understand, like, that's a comic book for 12-year-olds. Like, that's just what that is. You know? Like, that's who that book is written for. It's a really smart comic that kids can understand. Right, and it's 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 a fun book. Like kids can understand it, but it's smart enough for adults so that you know it's not like it's really condescending to any market. No, it's a blast. I love that book. It's been on my pull list since it fucking started, which was what God three years ago. Yeah, well, I mean, three years. Well, I mean, what two reboots so far? I, and I just want I just want to point out that for all the haters of Squirrel Girl, and they're out there, think of how many books get canceled, and think of the fact that Squirrel Girl just keeps fucking going. If I had rolled the theme song right there, that would have been like the perfect ending to this conversation. Because <laughs> that's so very true. Max, thank you so much for sharing your insight. Because I know we kind of got a lot of inst like, you know, real inside baseball. But yeah, I think it's important to have these discussions. Real quick, anything in the pipeline that you could tease? Oh, my God. I don't think so. Fair enough. I don't think I can talk about anything right now. <laughs> oh, and there's so much. <laughs> well, guess what? Well, I guess when you're ready, then we'll just have to have you back on. But um, totally. in the meantime, though, for anybody who may want to check out uh, your comics or interact with you online or anything else you want to plug before we head out. Just my Twitter account at Magsvisags. M-A-G-S-V-I-S-A-G-G-S. Very cool. And again, thank you so much. And that'll do it for this episode of Adrian Has Issues. And we will see you next issue. Thank you for listening to Adrian Has Issues. Please visit us on the web at adrianhasissues.com where you can stream and download all of our other great episodes. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com backslash adrianhasissues. 
follow us on Twitter at Adrian Has Issues and on Instagram at Adrian Has Issues Pod. You can also find us on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, TuneIn Radio, and the Laughable Podcast app. Thanks again.